At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. It's Jim Cramer here. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Don't miss a minute of the action. Good Thursday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber, Sarah Eisen at Post 9 of the New York Stock Exchange. Kramer has the morning off. Pre-market has erased some early morning losses, even as the 10-year got awfully close to five. A big day for Fed speak. Seven speakers, including Powell at noon Eastern and tons of earnings movers. Our roadmap begins with Powell, of course. U.S. government bonds gaining for a fourth day. The 10-year nearing five as investors await some tea leaves from the Fed share today. Plus, uh, we do have that earnings parade. Netflix surges on sub gains. Tesla, that stock is down. Musk didn't sound so good on that conference call. AT&T, Blackstone, American Airlines, they are all names that we will be telling you all about. And the Ozempic effect. Nestle's looking offset any future sales impact now developing products to accompany weight loss drugs. Let's begin with Tesla. Among the biggest S&P laggards in the pre-market, the company did post a quarterly miss, including weaker-than-expected profit margins due to some of these price cuts we've been watching. Cybertruck was in focus. This is Elon Musk talking about it on last night's earnings call. I just want to temper expectations for Cybertruck. Um, it's a great product, but financially, it will take, I don't know, a year to 18 months before it is a significant positive cash flow contributor. Of course, Musk did uh, comment on all kinds of things beyond the company itself. Rates, of course, macro, work from home, uh, sort of echoing themes he's had before, David. Yeah, in fact, I remember during our interview in May, he went on quite a bit about work from home, uh, really criticizing those who are doing it. But, I, you know, I think uh, obviously for the stock itself and for investors here, it's the margins, it's uh, the impact of the price cuts, it's concern that this will continue for quite some time. And frankly, it's also the tone that Musk uh, adopted on the call itself. Um, you know, we know with Musk there can be ups and downs. Um, and I would also just add that unlike so many other companies where there are armies of PR people and the CFO and the head of IR and on and on who try to craft a narrative around a call, Musk has none of that. I mean, he's got a CFO, don't get me wrong, but they've got none of that. It's just Musk. And you're going to get what you get, Sarah. And in this case, he did seem very focused, as he has been on the past, on higher rates and what that's doing to affordability. It's worked for him in the past, not having the, the narrative it teams very structuring much the communications. Look, I think that you mentioned the automotive gross margins. It's worth repeating the number. 16.3 was a surprise. The analysts were expecting 17.7, and even that is lower. So those price cuts are weighing, and I think a lot of people were looking for him on the call to talk about the fact that they bottomed or troughed or there's some visibility, and, and we just didn't get that. I think the, the most expensive Model X has seen price cuts up to 30%. So that's going to weigh on margins. The operating margin down to in the 7% range. I mean, we're getting closer to normal automakers. It's not being valued like a normal automaker, but... The margins, which was the edge for Tesla for so long, 
clearly in focus. I thought it was interesting also, you know, in his in his colorful way. We dug our own grave on the Cybertruck because there's been a lot of excitement on that too. And it sounds like there are a ton of orders still. I think a million, a, well, they've got a million, a million orders, orders, but it's going to take a while to get there. It, you know, the complexity of production, and this is in part, and Musk will own this, I mean, in part because of what he wanted, is so complex that getting from, as he says, a prototype to volume production is just a very difficult thing. Um, and for those, for example, who've read Isaacson's book on Musk, there's a lot about sort of getting any number of Tesla models to that production number. It's hell. Uh, it's why he likes to have the production team, the engineers, right on the right near the assembly line, so you can actually understand when you're making changes. But in this case, a lot of it was his own desires that have made just the level of complexity here. It's going to take quite a while, and that's why he used that digging his own grave, I think, analogy to a certain extent, and, and saying it's just going to take a long time, even though demand is not the issue, Carl. Yeah, uh, Bernstein uh, has long had an underperform and a 150 target because their view is that in the end, automakers inevitably start getting low multiples. It's hard to have margin uh, prowess if you're a volume player. Uh, the closing low for August was 215, and I think August intraday low was 212. We'll yeah. see if it holds there. But a lot of those people who had thought of it as a car company rather than a tech company today are showing some oats this morning. They are. They are. Now, the other side of the equation is, though, those who believe that FSD is, I mean, it's been coming for so long, full, full, full driving, full uh, autonomous driving. Um, uh, and it will be here, and the robo-taxi won't be far behind, and the margins are therefore going to be far larger. And yep. what they're able to do in AI, both as part of the car but separately as well, is going to be quite significant. And on from there, not to mention the Optimus robot and what that could mean. So you're not going to eliminate those, Carl, who I think believe that there is a, 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 a <clears throat> very strong future for this company outside of simple car production. But when it comes to it today, certainly you are seeing some moderation of expectations. In fact, RBC Capital Markets even said, you know, the, the core investment thesis or part of it here is on full self-driving. And with these lower prices, that could lead to higher adoption and profitability, ultimately, on full self-driving. I think the other sort of reassuring point for the bulls on Tesla is that they reaffirmed the, the 1.8 million vehicles yeah. deliveries for this year which was kind of a question, and they're going to have to really ramp it up in the fourth quarter to get there, but that does offer a little bit of consolation for those that were worried about some of these production and factory delays and, and some of the issues he talked about. The other macro point that people took away, sort of the not as enthusiastic about the economy, people have been excited about the Mexico factory, which he said at the end they weren't necessarily going to go full tilt, I think were the Elon Musk words because of what's happening in the global economy right now. Yeah, he said even in rough seas, even the best ships uh, uh, have some trouble. Interesting, too, we had been watching uh, the shutdowns, which is kind of like trying to paint your living room while you're living in it, and that's one reason why you can't be running full tilt on deliveries and production all the time if you're thinking about the long term. Yeah. I mean, that said, there is still that question in terms of their ability to compete with um, Detroit, so to speak, with GM uh, and Ford in particular given, Sarah, their margins in EV are not there to begin with, and with the impact of the strike. I was going to say, they're not even about to get crushed by labor. Yeah. You know, it, 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 it becomes an even bigger question as to whether, yes, you may question the profitability in terms of Tesla to some extent as their margins decline a bit because of price cuts, but what's their competition going to look like? Right, that's the problem. Mark Fields was on, the former Ford CEO, with us last week, and he was saying the longer this goes on and the 
And the more that the automakers have to give when it comes to these these increases on pay, the less competitive these companies are going to be with not just the Asian automakers, but the Teslas and the Rivians of the world who don't have to deal with unions. Huge advantage. But maybe that's already reflected in the stock. It was up more than 100% going into this report. It's only given back about 7% today in that context. Still having a great year. It is. Although all the macro stuff made it, must have made you very happy, Sarah, when you were listening. I you always talk about the impact when, of rates sure. and everything else and these, you know, you know it's, stormy and, times and ships. And, and it's great to hear it from companies because that's like a real-time indicator of what's happening, especially with this strange economic data we've been getting, the acceleration that we've seen from the consumer and retail sales or the GDP above 5% or the jobs. Like, you're just not hearing that. You're not hearing it from the banks. You're not hearing it from the Teslas of the world. They're still talking about an economy that's slowing, rates that are rising, and a consumer that's feeling a lot differently. So it is very important to hear some of this color. Yeah. Again, Musk, I can't emphasize enough that the vast majority of people buying a car is about the monthly payment. All right, speaking of monthly payments, what you're going to pay for Netflix is probably going to go up. But it is this morning by far the biggest pre-market gainer on both the S&P and the 500, uh, and S&P 500 and the NASDAQ. The streaming service added about 9 million subscribers in the third quarter. That was far above what had been ac- expected. It also did post earnings above most analyst estimates. The company has been helped by that crackdown on password sharing. Netflix also announced plans, as I indicated, to hike prices. That's going to be a $3 a month increase for its premium ad-free service. It's basically coming in at $23 a month soon. You can see Netflix shares are surging. Although, Carl, to be fair, when you go back not even that far, they haven't, they were at levels that we are now going to be inhabiting again not that long ago because it had been suffering of late uh, in terms of at least concerns overall about subgrowth and all the other other headwinds. Yeah, a couple of upgrades. Uh, Key goes to overweight 510. Uh, Truist goes to 465 as they up to buy. Uh, The sub ads were the best since COVID began. Uh, Bernstein points out very impressive, especially since wasn't exactly their strongest slate on display uh, during the quarter. I guess the debate will be whether or not this new round of sub ads is pulling forward uh, the future or if maybe the market for paid share is bigger than people think. Well, what, what was even more impressive than that almost 9 million sub ads were that they said next quarter that they are going to see a similar amount of subscriber ads, plus or minus a million. I think that was very surprising. I was watching Mark Mahaney yesterday on, on Closing Bell after the numbers came out, and he was saying that that was like a wow, because it's one thing to get a, you know 9 million subscribers on the password sharing, but the fact that they think that's repeatable. I, I do think the question from there is, is how much longer, right? If, so, so people aren't canceling and they are signing up to this family plan and, and these new plans. However, how much more juice can they get out of that? But they were also pretty bullish on the ad tier as well, growing 70%, of course, off of nothing. Right. So it's and saying that they really up. haven't seen the impact of that as yet, and no. that's still to come. But I thought some of the examples, you know, I love the Netflix investor letter because you get so much color. And they mentioned some of the examples, Frito-Lay Smart Food, for instance, um, advertising and putting something out, you know, on on one of the Netflix shows. They were talking about, of course, I noted the T-Mobile sponsoring this F1 program that they're going to live stream ahead of the Vegas race with the the golf players, Um, trying to, to... sort of communicate to investors that they're really tailoring these experiences for brands 
and these opportunities for brands in a, in a valuable way. There is also a question, Carl, as to whether you'll hit some sort of a vacuum in terms of new content as a result, again, of the writer strike, which has been resolved, but also the actor strike, which has not, and whether that decrease in production is potentially going to bring people to at some point to say, I don't really need to watch yeah. this month or this, this period of time. That, that said, uh, Wednesday's coming back, uh, Squid Game's coming back all before 2025, so some of their tentpole franchises you'll see uh, in the next four quarters Wait, at least. Squid Games is coming back? Yeah, you'll I see Squid. I did not know that. Yeah. Uh, and Wednesday and Wednesday. There's one, Stranger, maybe, one more time, I think. Yes, they've been working on that yes. for, for years. Yeah. Why is, what's with everybody Stranger. watching Suits? They mentioned that you know Suits was available on all these other platforms, and it's an old show, and yet it comes on Netflix, and everybody's... It's like a Meghan Markle They thing? do have an ability to revitalize <laughs> yeah, uh, franchises that did not do well in other places, or at least have been forgotten, let's say, even on other streamers. So they'll take Band of Brothers from HBO Max, 23-year-old show or 20-something-year-old show, uh, and then people will watch it, yeah. like I am. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like leftovers. Sometimes they taste good. Uh, one question getting tossed around this morning is whether or not, if, if PayShare is working so well for them, why shouldn't it work well for the likes of a Disney, for example? Right. Is there a read-through to Disney, which obviously is sort of the key number two player, and or uh, uh, Warner Brothers Discovery with its Max offering, and on from there? Is it applicable across streaming services, the strength we saw here. I, I, that doesn't appear to be the way the market's taking it this morning, uh, Carl, at this point. Um, their content budget actually came down a bit, as it you might expect. Yeah. yeah, and that helped. That obviously free helped, cash flow helped, helped free yeah. cash flow yeah. numbers. But next year, it's going to be going back up. It's just because of the strike. They yes. raised the free cash flow. Yes. But, and you're going to see a benefit to that for Warner Brothers Discovery as well. But over time, it obviously evens out. Netflix set to open sharply higher here. Meantime, President Biden has returned from his trip to Israel, where he expressed support for that country and its war against Hamas. He's scheduled to deliver a primetime address from the Oval Office tonight. NBC's Jay Gray in Tel Aviv with the latest for us. Jay, good morning. Yeah, good morning, Sarah. And American public will hear from the president tonight, but we're hearing from Israel on his visit already. The headline here saying Biden dictates new rules of the game. And a lot of that uh, surrounding his push to get humanitarian aid into those in Gaza who desperately need it right now. And we learned overnight that Israel and Egypt have agreed to allow some of that aid to cross at the Rafah uh, border crossing that between Gaza and Egypt can't start today. They are repairing roads in the area that were damaged during bombing runs by Israeli fighter jets, but they believe they can start some of the aid, food, water, and medicine moving into the area as early as tomorrow. They haven't had a delivery for the better part of two weeks, and there are a lot of people, two million or so, caught in the crossfire there who desperately need some help. Now, what we don't know is the duration, how long this is going to last as far as bringing this help in. But when you look at the situation, as it's unfolding, you would think they may need it for a while because when you go to the opposite end of all this, we're seeing uh, an increase in the number of uh, skirmishes between Hezbollah now and Israeli fighters. Uh, we know today there have already been anti-tank missiles launched toward a kibbutz in what is considered the security fence area of that border, the IDF uh, retaliating with artillery fire. And, and they've been going back and forth uh, for several days now, the Israeli forces moving uh, more manpower, more troops into that region. And when you consider the atmosphere across the area right now with protests, thousands spilling into the streets. It seems like it's really ramped up the concern
concern about this moving to perhaps a second front in this war and the war spreading throughout the region. Very concerning, very tense right now. Part of the story in, in this uh, in this country has been the information we now have regarding the hospital attack. Uh, I'm just wondering how much of the data that we've gotten in the last yeah. 24 hours is resonating with the people in, in where you are right now. Yeah, and, and I, I think it's a mixed bag, Carl, to be real frank. I think there are a lot of people who have made up their mind already uh, that this was something carried out by Israel and that this is a partner of Israel stepping to their defense. There are a lot of people, especially those uh, angry enough to move out into the streets and protest around the embassies that say, uh, this is Israel uh, and it doesn't matter what you show me, if that makes any sense. And, and so that's something I think that's going to be a long play, that, that it's going to continue to have to uh, uh, show the evidence and data involved in this if they, they plan to win anyone over as far as that's concerned. But in some instances, I, ha I have to be real honest, uh, Carl, I don't think it's making a difference. Jay, thanks for that. Uh, we'll talk soon. Uh, Jay Gray joining us this morning, uh, giving us an update on yeah. all things Israel and Gaza. When we come back, we'll watch this rise in yields ahead of Powell today, speaking at noon Eastern at the Economic Club in New York, along with six other Fed speakers throughout the course of the day and the evening. Uh, take a look at the pre-market. It was negative for much of the morning. And we'll get to some other movers, including UNP and AT&T, uh, Discover, uh, Taiwan Semi, and some others when we come back. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Future is pretty stable here after yesterday's sell-off on Wall Street, worst day since the third of the month. Uh, Fed Chair Powell is due to speak at the Economic Club of New York today at noon Eastern time. His remarks uh, coming as yields continue to rise. The 10-year at 20, uh, 2007 highs, marching toward 5%, got to 498 today. Uh, general take, Sarah, is that um, he acknowledges the data has been strong, but also not acknowledges that long-term yields sort of reflect that? Yeah, and he could, he could overweight either one of those points, and then that would be interpreted as hawkish or dovish. Will he be more concerned that the data has come in strong and there are signs that inflation could stick around or even flare back up, and then they have to be more vigilant? Or will he echo some of his colleagues, and I would say most of his colleagues lately, in saying, we've done a lot, we're going to watch, we're going to stay on top of inflation, but at the same time, we've seen this move up in long-term rates, which also helps our cause, and we're willing to to wait it out a little bit. That, that's what people think he's going to say, because that's what other, even hawks, have said lately. I mean, I think Fed, Fed Governor Waller is always sort of a, a thought leader on this and was kind of early to go hawkish. And even he is kind of in the wait and see mode right now. Yeah, yesterday pointed out that uh, three-month core PCE running about 2%. 
Uh, we did have jobless claims this morning, uh, lowest since January on an initial basis, but the continuing when was the highest since July. So you could read it a couple ways. It's a noisy number always, you know, back and forth, but the fact that it was under 200,000 just continues to show that we're not seeing a lot of layoffs in this economy and that the job market remains strong, which explains a lot of the consumer strength as well, even in the face of excess savings dwindling and even in the face of student loan payments getting resumed and even in the face of rising rates, the 30-year fixed mortgage rate yes, 8%. at 8%. Highest it's been in 23 years or more, right? And we're in this crazy environment where you should see prices tank on the back of that for housing, but it's just not happening because there aren't enough of them. There's no inventory. And so people are just stagnant right now. You know, we are getting this accelerating economic data, and I mentioned it's not really being matched by the tone on, say, the, te the Tesla earnings call or the bank's call. Beige book, too. You know I love the Beige Book. It is so poorly branded and named because it's the most colorful economic report that we get. Here's a quote from Beige Book summing up sort of all the districts around the country and what they're saying about growth right now. They say expectations for future growth mostly unchanged. Two districts saw outlooks deteriorate. Consumer spending was generally seen as flat to down slightly amid continued reports of moderate price growth. Doesn't necessarily match up with 5.4% GDP growth. And nominal growth of more than 7%. So Fed is getting kind of a mixed picture right now and does have ammunition to stay pat. I think that's the, the, the key takeaway. We'll find out what happens at noon. Uh, Going to be interesting. We'll take a break here, get to some of the other movers this morning, including AT&T, jumping on this earnings beat and this uh, free cash flow guidance. Uh, futures here hanging on to gains this morning after mostly red arrows earlier today. More Squawk on the Street when we return. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Decent number of gainers this morning, a lot of them on earnings. That's going to be the case for Netflix, AT&T, Las Vegas Sands, UNP. The only one on there that's not an earnings call is Best Buy. That's out of Goldman today as they upgrade to buy. They go from 79 to 85. Opening bell coming up in just under five minutes. You saw in the uh, movers there in the S&P, AT&T, right near the top. Uh, it's going to have a good morning, at least at the open, it would seem, up perhaps as much as 6.8% when we start trading a minute and a half from now. Uh, just a good quarter. Um, good quarter when it came to postpaid net ads, uh, 468,000. That was ahead of most analyst estimates who were around maybe 400,000. Uh, consumer Wireline, uh, remember, they're very focused on fiber broadband. We're doing that overbuild. They added 296,000 uh, subscribers. That was also a better. And then they increased uh, free cash flow guidance. It had been 16 billion. Now they say about 16.5 billion for the year. But investors will take it. It's a bit better, and uh, it is seen as a positive. You know, always difficult to understand exactly what's going on under the surface. But it may be as simple as they're winning, sort of on the local level. Uh, they are, you know, empowering their store managers and the like and, and, uh, and taking it to, this is what they would say, the competition, namely Verizon and T-Mobile in terms of just gaining more share. 
And so you see, uh, guys, the, the stock is responding quite positively this morning. There had been concerns in earlier quarters, Carl, about free cash flow. In many ways, those seem to have been answered, at least at this point. We'll talk a little more telecom in a second here. There's a ton of news in that sector this morning. But let's get the opening bell and the CNBC real-time exchange with the big board. Executives and guests of Hewlett-Packard Enterprise, led by CEO Antonio Neri. At the NASDAQ, it's an American battery technology company and materials firm based focused on primary battery minerals, manufacturing and secondary lithium-ion battery recycling. As we get some green arrows here at the open, just above uh, 43.20 or so, David, you mentioned T, hard not to pair it with uh, Nokia and the miss there and the 14,000 job cuts they're planning because of weakness in 5G uh, in the United States. And then, uh, and then Huawei selling 1.6 million of their new handset in China in six weeks. We've had Tim Cook in China last couple of days trying to bolster demand for Apple products in that country. And we've gotten, as we always do when it comes to Apple, already different stories in terms of weakness or perhaps not as much weakness. By the way, going back to AT&T, nothing there that would indicate sort of weakness in terms of upgrades and the sell-through of the 15. It appears to be sort of business as usual. Apple shares are, well, there's AT&T up 8%. Uh, remember that dividend yield there, too, has been so uh, dramatically high at the 7.7% range. Actually, excuse me, 7.1% now. But obviously, that's because of an almost 8.5% increase in the, or more uh, in the stock price. It's just interesting to see we're up again now, 494 on the 10-year yield continues to march straight up. And today, it doesn't appear to be unnerving the tech sector as much because we're opening here with those communication services, information technology at the top of the market. The Nasdaq's higher by almost a half a percent. Could be just a reversal from what we saw yesterday, which was more than 1% declines across the board. But boy, do these yields continue <laughs> to march. And, and the other difference today is oil's a little bit weaker after a big jump yesterday. Yeah, uh, oil's being uh, eased by news that the U U.S. is finally getting started, the suspension of sanctions on Venezuela in return for some guarantees that their elections process uh, gets more democratic. But if it were to work out, uh, you'd be looking at, according to some reports today, of an increase in 200,000 barrels a day in Venezuela. That's a quarter of their production. Uh, and uh, might move the needle a little bit marginally in terms of uh, non-OPEC supply. At the same time, news out of the Middle East has not gotten worse, I guess you could say. We haven't seen ground invasion yet. We haven't seen Iran do anything more than it's sort of saber-rattling against the U.S. and Israel. We're watching it very closely. Yesterday, some reaction potentially to that on the upside of oil. Today, we're giving it back 1.3%. There is this question... David, when I talk to people about why investors aren't reacting more to what we're seeing out of the Middle East and just around the world in general, out of China, China and Russia, and it really is hard for, for you to price these kind of risks. I mean, you go back to semiconductors and you know tech stocks and companies with a lot of China exposure, and we don't know exactly where that's headed, but it feels like it's moving into a dangerous place, and it's just a really difficult one for investors to grasp. No doubt. And it's, I mean, when it comes to China in particular, it's just so difficult, I think, for investors to truly understand at the government level uh, and beyond or below what really is going on. I mean, there is data available, although less data perhaps than had been the case not even that long ago. 
Um, I'd refer today, for example, the shares of uh, VMware. This is a company mm -hmm. that's getting bought by uh, Broadcom. It's about it's worth about 100, let's call it 183 dollars or so. It's cash and stock, so it moves around a little bit. It's called 183.80. That stock is trading well below that in part because even though the company keeps saying we're going to close our deal on the 30th of October, the end of the month, 31st. Uh, there are continue to be reports that the Chinese antitrust regulators may have second thoughts about that. Hock Tan, who runs Broadcom, by the way, was in China very recently and is sticking by the 30th. So we'll see. Um, but again, to your point, Sarah, for investors, it can be very difficult to understand the underlying there, what the response will be, for example, to the latest move by the U.S. government to restrict certain other higher-end AI-related chips um, and or what the back deals and forth like this, will be. at least. They could and do will that. It, and will it, will it show itself through blocking deals? Again, Broadcom says no, and their expectation is they're going to be closing this deal within the next two weeks, but um, the market seems to be thinking differently when you think about $158 stock on $183 price, potentially. Um, not very far away. On the bullish side of the ledger for China today, we do have Las Vegas Sands as one of the biggest gainers in the S&P 500. Um, the company swung back to a profit in the third quarter. Of course, last year they were at a loss and things were shut down. The commentary recovery story is happening in Macau and in Singapore, and that certainly helped. The COO said it's not fully there in terms of air travel and accessibility, but it's on its way. Not fully back, but, but on its way. And I think what also might be happening the stock, as we see here, is a authorization of a $2 billion buyback plan. That stock down this year into the print, getting a nice lift today. There was also that really bearish. Did you see that Greg Yip article in the Wall Street Journal about, about China and the debt problems and how in a normal economy you might be more concerned about a financial crisis given some of the property problems and the, the local government debts piling up. But in China, you know, they, they somehow local figure out a way. took on a great deal of debt from the, com from the country's build. banks in order to fund. And they rely on property sales for a lot of their revenues. Those sales have obviously not come through as a result of the significant decline in the property market in China. And so, yeah, it raising this question as to whether you could have some sort of a rolling financial crisis, not necessarily one that would happen immediately, but over time. Right. Uh, meanwhile, the yuan weakness has resulted in them recycling fewer uh, dollars into treasuries. And that yeah. was El Arian's big point this morning on Squawk Box, that the treasuries have sort of lost sort of key anchor tenants, whether it's the Fed as a buyer, institutions as a buyer, the Chinese as a buyer, possibly the Japanese. Uh, and in his view, uh, anchor, anchor elements of the market are beginning to wither away. That's and that's an important thing to address. It's, it's part of the narrative on Treasuries and, and one of the more worrisome ones because it can't be solved by the Fed unless the Fed, you know, turns around Q, QT and starts buying bonds again as a, if they have to step in and become a buyer to get rates under control. And it's not what the Fed members are talking about right now. I can tell you they think that QT is on autopilot and it has a long way to go still. But yes, you're preempting a great chart I have for the top of the 10 o'clock hour on the ticks data, the Treasury inflows data, <laughs> which basically shows that China continues to reduce its holdings of U.S. stocks and bonds. One argument could be that they're doing that to defend their yuan. Their currency is a lot weaker than they might want, and they have to you know, sell U.S. assets to intervene. But it's also part of the geopolitical backdrop and the backdrop for Treasuries, the global backdrop for Treasuries about who's going to step in and be a buyer. 
Uh, economic activity, though, here, you saw all of the weakness in the transports yesterday. At one point, uh, it was the worst day for the trans since uh, April. UNP kind of comes to the rescue a bit today. Uh, 251 does beat 244. Revenue was a miss, but the guidance was unchanged and a nice recovery in some of the rail uh, operators. Kind of r- reminds us what J.B. Hunt uh, said yesterday, Sarah, about increased activity among the rail providers. That's a key, uh, a key look for what's happening uh, at, at the ground level in terms of the macro. Yeah, Stiefel says Union Pacific is the best railroad network of all of them, strong unit economics, efficient cost structure. So there's, there's some things there too, but obviously on a day where the transports got smacked yesterday, United, I think, was down almost 10% on the day. You wonder what that says about the cyclical story, even though part of the United story was just a re-rating on the cost structure with costs going up. We got American today as well. American, yeah. American, uh, not a bad quarter. Uh, 38 cents beats 25. Revenue was shy, but they do see the holiday uh, quite strong. Uh, And uh, Bob Isom was on Squawk Box earlier today. There's AAL up 2%. But then you got Alaska Air, which was a miss by 4 cents, a miss on revenue. They guided below. I'm trying to see where this will take you back to at these levels on ALK sometime in mid-2020. But this was United's point yesterday, uh, that the growth in the business is really reliant on the legacy carriers and not not necessarily uh, the low fare rivals. It's just hard to determine whether we have a demand problem or not. And for a market that's jittery about buying anything that has worked well in terms of where consumers have spent on the discretionary sector, the hotels, all the services sector, hard to get a clean read on where that's going right now and whether we can see that kind of demand. Although in the beige book, I did learn, you know, you get all these snippets that tourism was very strong in the New York area. In the, in the past few months, actually that, or in the past month, I should say, Statue of Liberty visits finally regained their, their pre-COVID <laughs> levels. First, two things. First, you should do an hour just on the beige book every, every okay. week or every, what is it, every month? Yeah, every month. Um, and they usually do give New York City a shout out. I know it was Broadway a couple of quarters or uh, Well, months because ago. they're taking information from all of their contacts yeah. of, of businesses all around and trying to get a, a snapshot. And I thought the, the tourism in New York is a good sense if we're trying to, if the Fed is trying to put a lid on services sector inflation and services spending, that's where it's been yeah, hot. Yeah, they're, they're everywhere. They can just call me because I see them. I mean, they're down here when you start your day and you go to 30 Tourists. Rock, they're all over the place. They're all on the river, the subways. Yeah, they're that's always. That's good. They walk slow. They're looking around. <laughs> they want to know where way. the museum is. Where's the museum? <laughs> You're an angry New Yorker. I am never angry. The poor <laughs> people, they walk through the Central Park. They don't walk across Central Park. They walk through the tunnel. I'm like, oh, oh no. that's so sad. <laughs> anyway, I divert. Uh, let's get back to Blackstone, guys. Okay. I, I, I wish I had an, a reason for you why the stock is down as much as 4%. You know, the pace of asset sales, perhaps, not what people have been looking for. This is... Uh, this is the largest alternative asset manager out there. Uh, trillion dollars they cross in assets under management. That is truly something. One trillion, uh, up 6% year over year. Fee earning AUM, by the way, is $734.5 billion. That's up 4%. And then they have perpetual capital. You got to love that. It's not going anywhere. $388 billion. But um, it's, you know, yeah, of course. Higher rates. I mean, John Gray, uh, president of the firm, was on Squawk Box earlier talking, Sarah, about the impact of higher rates overall, making the point, as he always does, that we're very small in office buildings. We're very small in sort of the parts of the commercial real estate industry that are suffering right now, but did allow that higher rates have an impact across the board. You can take a listen to Mr. Uh, Gray. 
if you take an intermediate longer term view, we've been underbuilding housing by about four or five million homes since the financial crisis. We're now going to see housing starts, I believe, across multifamily and single family probably come down, exacerbating that shortage. And so if you think about an asset class over time, I think it should have pretty good performance, even if there are some near-term challenges. That was him on housing, not on rates. He's been warning that it's going to hurt the consumer and it's going to hurt the economy. I think also the fundraising numbers were not necessarily what investors were expecting. It's a tough fundraising environment. Um, and so those numbers, I think, coming in late, especially for the, the new flagship fund, a little bit less than expected. Blackstone down 4% right now. A year now. ago, we were talking a lot about BREIT, though, and we really don't yeah. discuss it as often anymore. They've actually held in there quite well uh, after a very uh, difficult period for uh, one of the largest REITs out there, but of course, private. Um, and a significant offering to so many high-end um, uh, clients uh, around the country from their, from their brokers. Speaking of things we were talking about a while ago, I mean, remember the regional banks? We're, get, we're getting more regional bank earnings numbers, and, and so far, okay. Fifth Third is up the, the most of the bunch. We're going to talk to the CEO later this hour, up 2.4%. But I think what Mike Santoli said yesterday still holds, which is no major alarm bell set off when it comes to the state of regional banks, whether it's reserves coming out. We're still watching those reserve numbers, and they're still kind of up and down a little bit. But it really comes down to whether you're beating or missing on net interest income these days, which should theoretically be higher for the banks on the back of, of rising interest rates, but their deposit costs go up as well. And so it's how they're managing that and what's happening with share. But for now, the financials as a group are up, and week to date, they are unchanged, given all the big bank earnings that we've had. Meantime, been better. Morgan Stanley did get whacked yesterday. yesterday. It's rebounding oh, that was a bit the, today. Uh, <laughs> one of the worst earnings pr uh, uh, responses in terms of uh, stock activity since the financial crisis. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of different moving parts there. We, we keep trying to probe some of the regional bank CEOs, First Horizon yesterday, on, the, on credit and whether or not there is real deterioration in credit. And it's hard to get them to say yes. No, they, they, they are putting aside more provisions for bad loans, especially related to real estate and commercial real estate. But no, they're not talking about a huge deterioration in credit quality. They're not talking about recession. They're not talking about stress. Bank of America, Brian Moynihan said that to me as well. Like, not, not stress, you know, but we're... We're watching this, but it's more normalization trends than anything else after consumers had so much excess savings coming out of COVID that it was more the anomaly of the last two years that things were so strong when it comes to deposit balances and savings rates and spending. Uh, interesting action. Uh, SAP uh, with, a, with a pretty decent quarter here reiterates the guide. Those ADRs uh, back to levels that we last saw probably uh, Mid-September, uh, above the 50-day for the first time uh, since then. That's interesting to watch. Uh, and then Taiwan Semi uh, had a pretty nice gain pre-market, up 4%. Uh, profit was the biggest drop in almost five years, but they did sort of hint, David, at uh, the recovery, which we've long been waiting for in semis, uh, maybe getting uh, closer. And with that, definitely the highs for the month on TSM. Yeah. You know, it, it figures so prominently, obviously, in the geopolitical concerns that so many have in terms of China, Taiwan. This is the company that makes the chips for so many of the important companies that design them, namely NVIDIA being certainly one of their most important customers. Um, and you'd as assume demand would be fairly good, but it's not just the highest end chips, it's across the board, and that is where you can see certainly a, a diminishment in some demand. 
I think it's worth hitting Netflix again. It's the top gainer in the S&P 500. It's up almost 15%. Remember, of all the big tech this year, it had been the underperformer because people weren't really sure about how this password sharing was going and the ad tier. But it does feel like what Netflix delivered yesterday brought the company back to, first of all, growth mode in subscribers and gave the, it turned the narrative on its head. How long, when was it, 2022, when we were talking about subscriber losses mm-hmm. for Netflix? They predicted yeah. more subscriber losses. The whole question of the model of streaming was sort of turned on its head, and then everyone started saying, we're going to emphasize profitability, not subscribers anymore. Crackdown on password sharing seems to be working, yeah. uh, and it doesn't seem to be resulting in a lot of people leaving, which I guess was the key. Although at, at the highest end package, 23 bucks, Carl, that... That starts to add up for the average family when you're talking over, you know. That's true. Almost 300 bucks yeah. a year. One, la- one last uh, name I'll add is Goose. Um, getting a downgrade today over at uh, TD Cow, and they go to market perform, a target of 15. They were at 22. I think that's an all-time low uh, on uh, Canada Goose as we talk about uh, a pressured consumer. Uh, we'll watch that one closely. Uh, Dow up 12 here to start this Thursday. Before we go to break, let's watch bonds. As we said, most important thing of the day is going to be Powell at noon Eastern time. But we got Jefferson. We'll get Goolsby, Barr, Bostic, Harker, and Logan today before the night is out. Don't go anywhere. Among the most active names, no surprise, there's Tesla down almost 8% this morning on the miss. The gross margins down 30 bips quarter on quarter, although they did reiterate the full year production guide. Uh, we'll see if it holds uh, 215, the August closing low, but still about a two-month low on Tesla this morning. We'll take a break and be right back. We've been researching, and uh, we have uh, products that are good fit already now. For example, our OptiFast range of products, which I think is very good before, during, and after uh, the treatment with these GLP-1 agonists. Um, We have products in our boost range that are very much targeted to that, and we have new innovation hitting the market uh, as soon as next year. That was Nestle CEO Mark Schneider on the earnings call last hour. The company saying it has not seen any impact from weight loss drugs on its sales so far but is moving ahead with efforts for companion products to those drugs, sees it as a potential opportunity, guys, after David explained to me what agonists are. I think the important thing to remember here is that Nestle has a pretty wide portfolio and was probably asked the question because they make things that are not good for you, like Kit Kats and Haagen-Dazs ice cream. And I don't think that that's the part of the portfolio he's talking about. He's talking about they do a lot of vitamins. They do a lot of sort of weight loss stuff to begin with. OptiFast does bars and low-calorie meals and Boost, you know, is like high, high protein and high, yes. high vitamins. And I think that they, it's more of a seemingly a marketing opportunity for them um, to rebrand those things to cater to this increasingly large Well, you've got to come GLP up with an answer in some way to this question that you're going to keep getting. Uh, there is a loss of muscle mass associated with these drugs, in yep. part because simply when you drop as much weight as is the case oftentimes. You are losing muscle mass as well. It is a concern for for the elderly in particular, and so there you may not see the uptake of the drugs. But maybe if you have products that increase your intake of protein and help maintain muscle mass while you're on them, you could argue that that's a positive. As we take a look at shares of Eli Lilly, of course, which we've talked about so often that have benefited so much uh, over this time from, by the way, Manjaro is still not approved for weight loss soon to come, I believe, unless I missed something. Uh, still. Uh, label diabetes. for diabetes. Yeah. yeah, which is a game changer for that class as well. I, do people stay on these drugs forever? 
I mean, is that is that that's, the goal? That's the question, I think. I think many people don't. There are side effects. Uh, they get the necessary weight loss, but the question then is, because we don't have enough time, we haven't we seen, haven't right? That. Then do you gain it back? Do you go back on? Do you reduce dosage in some way, but stay? I don't know, Sarah. Does it make you too nauseous to stay on it? I mean, I'm just, I'm trying to, you know, it's obviously taken the market and the investment community by storm and, and leading to all sorts of, so this, what does it mean for this? What does it mean, what does it mean for coffee? I heard that when you take these drugs that your coffee tastes different and even though you don't want less coffee, maybe it gives you a bad taste. So then Nestle has Nescafe. There, there's so many ifs so many. on this question. But, you know, we've had diet drugs in the past. We've had Atkins. We've had all sorts of, and I, I wonder where, if this is different than everything else. I believe this, I mean, yeah. would, based on at least what we understand about the science thus far, this is different. Yeah. Um, yeah, providers, uh, insurance doesn't, uh, you know, pay for your Atkins diet, but yeah. if they pay for this, that's going to change And the outcome, everything. the health outcomes are amazing. Yeah. By the way, if you, I don't know, we probably can't chart S&P food and beverage versus Novo, but it was Deutsch's chart of the day yesterday, and you can see exactly where Novo took off and S&P food and beverage just, just tanked. Right? The, a, the relationship, the causality is pretty obvious. Also interesting what it's done to some of these medical device makers, you know, fewer surgeries needed. That sort of thing. Bariatric surgery, for yeah, example. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. All opinions expressed by the Squawk on the Street participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information Squawk on the Street participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Squawk on the Street disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Squawk on the Street disclaimer. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.